Hello, and welcome to Midair, a podcast about high school by high schoolers. Well, mostly. Some of us, like yours truly, aren't technically high schoolers since, let's see, about last week. (laughs) Anyway, I'm Victoria, and today's episode, Limbo, is about being stuck in an in-between, in a liminal space, as one of my mentors, hi Mr. Bell, would say. Everyone gets stuck. Stuck in between online and in-person school, stuck between online and in-person performances, and stuck in between wanting to be immersed in your culture but not feeling like you truly can. Everyone I know is living in limbo this year. I know I've been. As you can probably tell, I was born as a girl. Or maybe you can't, but either way I was. But this year, I had the space to realize that I'm not. A girl, that is but I'm also not a guy. Realizing was definitely not an easy process. (laughs) There are a lot of reasons why, but a big one is because I don't have any of the more obvious signs of being trans. I don't hate my female body, and I don't want to be the opposite binary gender. And honestly, I still don't fully know what my gender is. For a while, I didn't label myself with any trans identity. I just said that people could use any pronouns for me but I didn't like that. So I started using the label non-binary and they them pronouns, but it still didn't feel exactly right. Now I'm leaning more towards the label genderqueer because it feels more like what I think non-binary should be, which is not a third gender, but rather an umbrella term for anything that is outside of the standard gender binary, not binary. And to me, that's much better encapsulated by the term genderqueer, which is why I like it. And they, them still doesn't feel exactly right either, but it's what I'm sticking with for now until I find something that I feel fits me better. So all this to say that essentially after this spiel, y'all have about as good an idea of my gender as I do. (laughs) It's all incredibly confusing and there's no right answer. But the other parts of my limbo is not having told my family because I'm too nervous. But I suppose that's solved with this podcast since I know they're listening. Hi guys. That's my personal limbo. On today's show, you'll hear stories of trying to navigate the dizzying pandemic that has induced the in-between space of life that we've all been living through. Act 1 delves into the various difficulties with school, including the grading system and what it's like to go to school as a freshman in a pandemic. Act two explores the wild journey of changes both theater and dance have taken in the last two years and how the students impacted dealt with that. The final act takes a deeper look into two students' relationship with their racial identities and how those were impacted by their upbringing. Now, we welcome you to Limbo. Grades have been a part of our lives for as long as we can remember. But what is the actual effect of those little letters on the mental health of the students whose lives they govern? Well, a group of OPRF underclassmen are here to investigate that very question. Hi, I'm Asha and I'm a sophomore at OPRF High School. Hi, I'm Lindsay and I'm a freshman at OPRF. And I'm Bethann and I'm a freshman at OPRF. So, was there a specific time that you felt like you were let down by the grading system? My great-grandpa was in the hospital for a while, um, not with COVID, but for another reason. And 
I didn't even want to have to think about math. Your grades don't reflect you as a person or how you learn. It's it's the system that's just not really doing a good enough job. We all agreed that it often gets assumed that just because we're young, that means we don't have anything else going on in our lives and should be putting 100% of our energy into school all the time. I feel like the school shouldn't just take that into consideration more. They kind of just... Oh, yeah. yeah. You should be able to work with your teachers maybe and say, I have this thing going on. You don't have to be specific or whatever. But you can say, like, I have personal stuff going on. This isn't my top priority right now. Understand that. And like, yeah. And, like, teachers can understand that because they're also human. This year especially, we felt that many teachers have been pretty understanding and willing to give extensions and other similar things. However, we also felt that keeping our grades up has been harder this year. Here's what freshman Bethann has to say about being affected mentally by grades. Like, semester grades just shouldn't define who you are as a person, though, academically. That's just always been my opinion. I have always been a BC student. It's not that I'm dumb or I can't do the work. It's that's because of the way that the school system is and the way that they have us do work. It doesn't work with how I personally learn. So I've never been able to be a straight A student. And I'm, I'm just, not a straight A student I've at just, all by any means. Yeah, <laughs> but I've just, I've had to come to terms with that. And you know, I, I didn't feel good about myself. Kids feel like, oh my God, I have this bad grade and because of this, I'm never gonna get anywhere in my future because that's what schools like to tell you. You get a bad grade, you fail. You fail, you can't go where you wanna go and then your life is ruined. The whole thing of like, um, you need to strive for straight A's and be better and better and better. Asha says that the way schools are set up to encourage everyone to strive for the very best all the time can often be very draining. Even though it's always great to try your best, it's very stressful to be told that every grade you get will determine your future. She says that the idea of being a good student means getting straight A's and always being pushed your limit can take a serious toll on kids' mental health. As from as young as 14, like for four years, kids are stressing out about letters on a piece of paper when it's not going to affect the rest of your life. And I feel like the well, no for some people, system. it does affect yeah. the rest of their life. Let's say I want to get into like a music college, right? I want to get into a good music college. I want to get the great, a good training and everything to be better and better and better. That's good for some people, but I'm saying like, for example, people like me, where like, I, I'm not saying that it's bad that you want to strive. That's a, like, some people just like really like to strive for the top. Like, yeah. Yeah. school yeah. makes you we, think that if you don't strive for the top, that if you're not at the top, then you're at the very bottom. If, like, every kid is taught the same, or, like, I mean, not, like, every single school, but, like, you know what I'm saying, like, every mm -hmm. kid is taught through the same system, and but it's, like, every kid is not the same, and, like, the idea that numbers don't measure intelligence is super important. Asha, Bethan, and I all consider ourselves different types of students, but throughout this past month, we've examined each of our specific experiences with the grading system and realized that somehow we all still struggle with it in different ways. Whether it's that we feel too much pressure to get straight A's all the time, or we just can't get straight A's, or maybe it's that sometimes we end up sacrificing our well-being for assignments, there's a different set of issues for each student. Even though students' individual problems with grades are no one's fault specifically, we agreed that we would be better off if there was more specialized learning for individual students. It also right. shouldn't be memorization. It should be learning and like understanding the concept so you can like piece it together and then yeah. understand it and then yeah. take a test about it. In conclusion, something needs to change with the grading system. And I think we do all agree on that, but.
During our time working on this segment, we all came to a general agreement that a step in the right direction to fix this issue would be to have students be taught in specific ways that are suited for them. Whether that would include putting together groups of students whose brains work in similar ways, having certain staff members having occasional meetings with kids to discuss how they think they're processing information, or some schools have alternative systems for grading. Whatever changes happen, we think that any of these things would benefit both kids who feel that they are being pushed too hard, kids who feel that there are unrealistic expectations, and anyone in between, so it might be something to consider. This segment was by Asha Puri, Lindsay Kaina, and Bethan Ivey. It was produced by Lindsay Kaina, Asha Puri, Bethan Ivey, and Miles Barron. Next, freshman Simon talks to a remote student, Peyton, and a hybrid student, Jules, and discusses the experiences of learning this year completely remote versus being a part of the hybrid schedule. Hello to everybody. I hope you're all doing well whenever you decide to tune in today. Today we have what I like to say is a pretty interesting topic, a tale of two sides, if you will. As I'm sure you all know, this year is very unsure, to say the least, especially regarding school. Over here, our students spent the first half of their year fully online, and after winter break, many students were given the chance to come back. And as the year comes to the close, I wanted to capture both perspectives on how the year went for students and what it's left them with. I sat down with the hybrid and online student to see how they felt about this year. Peyton Lowenthal Wojcik, an OPRF online student. Um, I'm Jules Casta. I'm a hybrid freshman at OPRF. Alright, great, great. Thank you for talking to me, Peyton. Yeah, of course. Um, of course. How are you doing? How are you? I'm very splendid on this day. That's lovely to hear. Um, so I'm going to ask you a few questions. Just answer honestly, you know? Sounds good. Uh, Alright. So first question is, what were your expectations like before you knew? would be only online. Oh, well, I was very excited. I <laughs> had friends that were older than me, and um, they told me that it was way better than middle school, so I was kind of expecting a better experience than where I went Brooks Middle School. Shout out Andrew Edwards. Yeah, he's great. Okay. Um, so when when it came down to having to pick back in January, when we started, um, obviously you're, you're an online student. Yes. Um, did your family influence you from your decision? Partially. I mean, my mom, um, she's, she has a job in Opera, mm -hmm. so that's partially, like, where I was like, oh, you know what, like, it wouldn't be so bad if I went, because it wouldn't be that much of a danger to my family, because, I mean, there's one person already going, what's two people really gonna do? And with my little brother already going to his in-person school, like it wasn't going to be that much of a big deal in my household, at least. Have you? Did you have a lot of like friends who were doing it? Um, like people you were cool with and like yeah, that kind of I had a good you? amount of friends, and I still do. But then the core changed all that. Yeah. So <laughs> thanks to that, Opiraf. Yes, when I brought it up to them and they were receiving emails about the subject, um, they weren't very decisive 
but they agreed that it wasn't the best option for me to go back. And initially, I agreed with them. Understandable, understandable. I actually think um, being a freshman gives me less stress than if I were a junior because yeah. obviously I, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of online learning compared to in person, mm -hmm. but being a freshman definitely helps with stress. Well, 100%, I totally agree with that. Um, how, how has your choice of schooling affected your relationships with like your friends, family, anyone else? Me personally, it's been easier because at the start of the year, I was a lot more introverted because I'm usually a more introverted person, mm -hmm. but then I got to know more people through like class chats, especially my English class. That's how I got a good portion of my other friend group now is that we chatted each other a lot on there and then we made a whole discord and now we just do random stuff. But yeah, it's been easier for me because I can talk to people online and mm -hmm. then like, hey, I know what to talk to them about if I see them in person now. So now I have something to actually talk about. So just standing there like, um, oh, what's your favorite holiday? Mine's blue. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's really good to hear. I'm really glad to hear that. I, I don't think we really realized it until COVID, but like talking to someone on the phone versus like in person, the differences are like fucking astronomical. Oh, for Obviously, it's been over, over quarantine. I've realized who's my school friends and who's kind of my real friends who I want to hang out with. Um, so I guess I'd say I'm not as close with my school exclusive friends, mm -hmm. um, but if I were choosing to be in person, I may have uh, been more in touch with them. No, no, kind of, kind of following with that. Has, has it been easier or harder for you to, to meet new people and like get get closer with people? Definitely harder. Mm -hmm. In person, I'm I'd say I'm a very social person and mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to make friends with people. But over a screen where you most of the time cannot see the other person and you're basically just talking about work, it's very hard to make those connections. All right, um, wrapping up, finally, because you know, we only have a limited, limited amount of time here. Um, finally, going forward, if you had to choose again or go back and change um, your decision, uh, would you, yes or no, and why? I wouldn't change it because I definitely got closer to a lot of people. I got to see people I haven't seen in a while, and it's just been nice talking to them again and really just like being myself within the school. Because school has always kind of been like my place to more express myself, mm -hmm. even though it stresses me to hold back. <laughs> because math, god damn it, math is so stressful for no reason. Who needs to find that for his theorem? But like, I just got closer to more people, and I don't really regret choosing hybrid. It's actually a very hard decision. Mm -hmm. There are perks to both sides okay. online. You get to sleep in, you can go to school in your pajamas, um, and you really don't have to wake up early to go there. Um, but on the other hand, you get to actually see people in person and talk to them more. Um, and I think I would if I if my parents weren't a part of my decision. Oh, so you do regret it? You do you do regret the choice? I do, I, but it wasn't totally in my control, you know? So, but if it wasn't totally in my control, I do kind of regret it seeing how my friends have so much fun and I'm just sitting there on my computer doing my online. Uh, it's just, it, it sucks seeing all your friends having fun together, yeah. meeting new people, and then you're just at your house. It just sucks. And, and do you feel like, and, and do you feel like w w the fact that you're not in person, you don't get to know your teachers and like, 
the staff more and you want to get to have that relationship that the, definitely yeah i feel like i don't really have that kind of connection i would usually have with my teachers mm -hmm. um there are a few teachers i really love like my english teacher um shout out mr brown mr brown yes sir uh i already he likes me i like him but i feel like we would definitely have that stronger connection um and even he would be a better teacher if we were in person and that goes along with a lot of other teachers who knows um I've heard a lot from a lot of friends that aren't in the hybrid program that they wish they were mm -hmm. and again it's kind of like the same situation as me where their parents kind of persuaded them not to choose right, of course. and they didn't want them going in but they do have the same feelings as me as wanting a deeper connection with their teachers, deeper connection with friends and meeting new people in general. Just that OPRF experience that mm -hmm. everyone expects. Exactly, that everyone's talked to us about since for years now, for like two years now. Exactly, exactly. Um. You know, at the end of the day, it wasn't about which type of school was better or which was even more preferred. It was about the fact that we shouldn't have even been doing it in the first place. This isn't how school is supposed to work. At best, what I was really trying to get across was insight into each other's lives, hoping we could better understand each other. With that being said, to my fellow freshmen out there, I hope I gave you the voice you needed so much. To everyone else, much love, thank you, and have a great summer. This segment was by Simon Gutierrez and Jules Casto. It was produced by Simon Gutierrez. Those were our amazing freshmen on what it's like to start high school in such an insane year. Next up, how do we still perform in a pandemic? If nothing else, this past year has shown us that OPRF students want to continue theater. You can help us do that by donating to OPRF Theater to keep our students acting. Please go to bit.ly slash OPRFTDD. That is B-I-T dot L-Y backslash O-P-R-F-T-D-D if you would like to give to our program. Welcome back. Now, we explore how the performing arts have acclimated in order to still let students partake in such an important expression of themselves this year. Before COVID, Oak Park and River Forest High School had an active theater department with shows in production from the beginning to the end of every school year in three different theater spaces, often with multiple shows in production at once. In this segment, students will take you through a year of theatrical ups, downs, downs, and more downs. We start with two students. Emery Brandhorst and Victoria Richter Stewart, who were each cast in separate shows rehearsing during the last weeks before schools and shows shut down nationwide. I am Victoria Richter and I am a senior at OPRF. Hi, I'm Emery Brandhorst. I'm a junior at OPRF. The show I was doing last year was Love and Information, directed by James Bell, written by Carol Churchill. And it is, it's a very interesting show because of the way it's written. It's just a bunch of named scenes about various topics with no pre-established characters. 
the show that I was in was Impossible Marriage. Uh, my director was Eleanor Bablin. And basically the show followed this family who was going through this impossible marriage. It was a one-act play, and I played Sydney, who was a disgruntled son who eventually ended up shooting himself in the foot. Rehearsals leading up to opening night, they were really normal. While there was some talk about COVID and everything coming up, we weren't overly concerned about it at that point. And we went through a full tech week and that was all going amazingly. And it was actually a really smooth tech. Tech can get rocky at times, but it was, uh, it was pretty smooth and it was all really coming together. Rehearsals were good, they were normal. There was that usual first week nervousness as we were all getting to know each other, but most of the cast was seniors, so there was automatically a good chemistry within the group, and already people knew what they were doing, and I could follow their example. So before, you know, COVID hit, we were really well on track. This was the first show that I ever got cast in a actual speaking role. Um, so that was so special to me and so important to me. I never, I was never really in one of the smaller plays. I was in a bunch of musicals, but I never really had the experience of being in a smaller play with a smaller cast. And I never really had, there's a, there's a really special sort of bonding experience that you have when you're in a cast with only a handful of other people. You get to really know each other and acting is something where, especially in this sort of play, it was really collaborative and we did it together, which really, really brought us closer. Our last rehearsal was the day before we opened, and it was our final tech rehearsal, and it was our final dress, and it was actually an invited dress. So the cast members were able to invite people, friends, family, um, to watch, to try to give the actors an experience of having an audience. And we were all fully prepared to have an opening night the following night. My mom was working costumes and she knew that it was an invited dress and she was almost, she almost went, but she figured, oh, I have tickets for tomorrow night, so I'll just go then. So that was really interesting. It was our last day before we were supposed to be off book for act one. So it was mostly a day of cramming lines. And then school got canceled. And about a week later, we were able to set up in person with masks, socially distanced, in someone's backyard. So we were able to keep rehearsing because we thought that, okay, we'll be back after spring break. So we weren't we weren't able to put on the show. We, we kind of, for a while, we thought we might be back in the building. Um, we almost did it online. We found a good time for most of the cast and we were all gonna do it. But then it got canceled later after the first Zoom show happened, not ours. There was hope for a long time. Mr. Bell tried again to get us all together, but at that point, it was almost the end of the school year and only a few people from the cast even responded, so we weren't actually able to put it on. We were the first OPRF show to perform over Zoom. We had one rehearsal in which we just read through the script again because we ended up doing it like two months later um, so we talked to Sadowski, and no one really knew how Zoom worked yet, and we didn't know that you could 
have like a third party record so like we didn't have any live stream or anything and you couldn't like purchase tickets it was our show was basically just put on a costume from what you own some kids were able to figure out a backdrop most kids weren't i was very disappointed because as i said before the show is it was immensely important to me having such a great bond with that entire cast who quite a few of which I knew I would never see again after this year because they were graduating seniors. Um, and they're such, such great people. It hurt for a while, but it just kind of filtered out because obviously there was not really a moment of clarity of like, oh, this isn't happening. It just kind of fizzled. Well, because of it, I've never actually done a play at OPRF. And I've been in theater for like three years here. So that's weird for me because even during this podcast, people have asked me like, what's it like to be in a show in Studio 200 or like the little theater? Because I'm a junior, I'm in theater, I should know. But I just have not done it because I didn't have any of that my uh, sophomore year or my junior year. So I feel like I don't know anything. Um, and I feel like I can be less of a leader in how a show should work because I haven't done it at all. I just feel behind. This segment was by Emery Branhorst and Victoria Richter, and it was produced by Emery Branhorst, Anna Thays, and Henry Madden. Hello, my name is Samuel Abinas, and I'm a junior. My name is Henry Madden, I'm a junior. Hi, I'm Emery Branhorst, and I'm a junior. Hi, my name is Satota Blomquist, and I'm a junior. So we're done? Yeah, bye, Zanna. <laughs> okay, um... I'm actually gonna cut real quick. Emery here. The four of us all came into theater this year expecting very different things. We would have never guessed that the experience of Zoom performance as a whole would take on a new form, its own comedic play, with us as the characters as well as the performers. Comprised of three scenes titled Clue, It's a Wonderful Life, and Working the Musical, let us guide you through the script, starting with the prologue. What brought us here? I don't have much of a theater background. I did most of the shows in middle school. Well, I did middle school again. I did chess in seventh grade, I think it was. Chess was a musical. I did musicals. Wait, I thought you just like played me. the game. No, chess. chess. Oh. I did a musical chess. Oh, there's a whole. Oh, oh, yeah, I thought you just like, had a weird thing. Like, yeah, I did a chess club for some reason. No. Yeah, I was like, no. why is he at No, yeah, musical chess. <laughs> Henry's right. Now is a good time to cut to the actual topic. As per usual, Sam can lead us in with a personal anecdote about Zoom calls in general. Because the beginning of quarantine, I was sad. I was sad. That's really the entire thing. And I got so bad to the point where I even wrote a screenplay 
Ooh. Never finished it. I'm starting it up again, but I'm doing a book instead. But um, then my mom came with an email and it's like, huh, you should start reading the bulletin, Sam. All right, there's a school bulletin. You're in school now. You need to start reading this. Keep up with current events. So I looked at the bulletin and I'm like, whoa, there is theater now. And once the actors have been cast, the show may begin. Scene one, Clue. Clue was the first show in the fall. Sam Satota and I, along with most of the cast, thrust ourselves into the show on short notice. My decision to do it was just kind of last minute, I think, too. For Clue, I literally signed up four hours before. Okay, the dude from Wadsworth, he told me he signed up like 20 minutes before. We had to maneuver through virtual background scenes and limited choreography and improvise if lines dropped because of internet complications. It's so, like, half the conversation just stops. There's somebody keeps going to the conversation. You don't realize that it stops until you're waiting a response. You just see people just stand still. <laughs> yeah. it turns out they've been stuck like that for the past 13 minutes. Though the show itself is entirely unremarkable, a staple of stage, movie, and board game life, Clue was our first taste of what it meant to perform without a stage or a live audience. Scene two. It's a Wonderful Life. In a shift from murder mystery to heartwarming classic, the second scene introduces a more well-known story and a twist. This meant live folly artists. The sound effects were happening live. They were doing the sound effects. They were had yeah. shoes on the doors. For Sam and Satota, who were in It's a Wonderful Life, participation was impactful. Scene three, working the musical. They say the world is a stage, and this year proved that. Our bedrooms, offices, and kitchens became the set for all of the shows, but especially the musical. With home and musical life melding, we ran into some unorthodox problems. I got into arguments with my parents. They were like, you can't tell us what to do. Sometimes we felt proud. I was really excited because like I never had like a big role for the musical but mostly we felt sore I had hurt so bad for one take because like every single take for like an hour I would like be almost done and then just green screen onto my head and ready to be finished there were times when I started crying working was a full production with editing set design and even an orchestra pit with Three bass players, one piano player, and one drum. We did have a guitarist. You usually, you usually like, oh god, we gotta find a bassist. Not, oh god, we don't have a guitarist or drummer or piano, but we have three basses. The show as a whole had all the components of a conventional musical, but still lacked the connection that a show brings. As I've gone through my and my fellow performers' experiences, I've realized a few things. One that for all the theater I was in this year, this conversation was one of the only times I felt connected to others. It was messy and rough and exciting. All the things theater should be. At the end of this year, all of the Zoom shows felt like a harrowing process with only a few minutes of tape reflecting on the experience to even show for it. But my other takeaway is that our efforts were not for naught. We learned and grew, and from this, we can come back to in-person performance stronger than ever. And when we do, we can rebuild the lost connections. The year of Zoom shows was unpredictable and tumultuous, but 
at least I can proudly say I went down with the ship. And that the new ship is in swimming distance. This segment was by Emery Branhorst, Henry Madden, Sam Lubinis, and Satota Blomquist. It was produced by Edward Rupar and Emery Branhorst. Fast forward to now, when the performers of Orcasus, the school's dance troupe, are back together for their show, in person. Four, five, six, seven, eight, do it again, you ready? Now with seniors Jenna Bellino, Rory Higgins-Urban, and more at Oak Park and River Forest High School rehearsing for their upcoming Orcasus show, which is the school's dance troupe. Orcasus is putting on one of the first live, in-person performing art shows at the high school since the pandemic began last March. For the last month, my team and I followed them throughout the process of preparing for the show. We wanted to see, understand, and know how Orcasus was adapting to dancing during COVID, but what we really discovered was the relief and sense of purpose members of Orcasus felt that was created by the return of an in-person show. When I performed in Zoom shows this year, talking with others backstage was impossible, moving my body was limited to my chair, and I wasn't even on stage. The experience left me feeling bored and unfulfilled, so witnessing rehearsals where a year's worth of energy was poured into performing was unbelievably exciting for me and also left me a little bit jealous. I wanted to dive deeper into the dancers' specific anticipations and worries regarding being back performing for the show. I started with asking Jenna Bellino to describe her experience of returning. It's one of my favorite things is doing duets or doing like a small group piece because it's like it, you just kind of it's like a weird slight out of this world experience because it's like the music is playing and you're in this costume and like even if there isn't like a story or an idea to the piece you kind of on your own maybe even subconsciously create this like okay this is what this piece is about or like with the song you're like this kind of is fueling me to do this and I think it's really cool I've actually never performed a duet that I've created, but I think it's cool with this that I'm a part of the creation process. I then asked Rory Higgins-Urban to discuss the social aspects of being back in person with Orcasus. Everything just like online, it's way harder to like keep your friendships and like build new friendships. So that's definitely what I've missed the most about like online school in general. So being able to come in and see anyone for Orcasus, like even the less people did it this year, like it was just really fun. And I feel like I was able to rebuild some of the friendships that I lost over like quarantine. And finally, I asked Olivia Yemrovich to express her feelings throughout the uncertainty of whether the show would happen or not. Yeah, um, I'm excited that it's happening at all because I was really devastated the beginning of this year because I was like, oh no, like it's a tradition to have your last Orcasus show and like be able to choreograph and everything. Um, so I'm happy about that. 
So from being able to feel the out of this world experience of dance to being able to be social again to being able to finish up your high school experience by doing something you love after a crazy year, the return of orchestras means so much to the dancers and it means so much to me. I can relate to the sense of loss they felt. So many friendships and feelings of excitement blended with nervousness that occur in performing arts can only happen when in person. And it's so refreshing to see all this back in action. As I was watching a dress rehearsal of Orcasis, I turned and saw the crew members discussing the lighting. I realized that not only have the dancers been impacted by the lack of in-person performing arts, but so have members of the school's crew who also haven't been able to be creative in set designing and building. I interviewed Patrick and asked him to discuss the loss of crew. It kind of takes away a part of your daily ritual, going somewhere and being with the same people. And it kind of just uh, was depressing, really. Yeah. I mean, we talked on Zoom and we um, had nothing to talk about. Yeah. So eventually people stopped coming and people stopped caring until we could do online shows. And right. then this is the first one we were actually able to come in and do something. And then I asked Josie to comment on the joy that comes from being able to work on the orchestra show in person. Um, it's great to have, you know, orchestra is, is one of my favorite things to do as crew. Um, so you kind of just get to go like crazy with the technical stuff. Um, so it's really nice to be back in person, um, you know, getting to design your own stuff and getting to put up lights. And it's also really nice getting to work with my friends who are seniors and this is, you know, their last show. So it'll be my last time getting to work with them. There are so many people involved in the world of performing arts who want to express themselves and be part of the community who couldn't because of the pandemic. They were left feeling isolated and without purpose and they all are so eager to begin to return to something that looks like normal. But there is still COVID and there are still restrictions. To keep it safe, they will be performing outside on a stage on a football field, which creates new challenges. Um, but this year, because it's outside and we have to like, we as the dancers are actually like setting up the stage, I think, and like the lights. She said, she was like, yeah, like we're rolling out the Marley and that's like the, the thing that the auditorium stage is made out of. Like, she's like, we're rolling that out. I'm like, that seems hard. Like, shouldn't we get like a carpenter? Yeah, like, especially like, you don't <laughs> get injured like a week. I know, we yeah. like break our arm right before the show. I have no idea. She was like, we are building the stage. But after all of the work, stress, and obstacles, the show is happening today, May 27th. As I watched the crew and dancers work in rehearsal, I felt so happy and uplifted. I felt this beautiful energy in the auditorium as vibrations and music blasted from the speaker, as the dancers' feet thumped on the stage, as people chatted, and as many powerful movements cut through the air. Everyone was able to express themselves after so long, and it really shows in the passionate performances. 
I want to close with some final reflections and anticipations before the show from orchestra dancers and crew members. It's kind of crazy because we can't just bring all our equipment outside. We can't just bring everything we do outside. But um, it's really the only way we'll be able to do it live within the next like year. Um, and one thing I am excited for is you know the actual live show itself, yeah, and right. um, I think that'd be really exciting to actually do that again because I literally have not done that in over a year. Um, I actually the show I worked on last year was canceled because of COVID. So I haven't done an actual live show in a while, and I think it would be really exciting to be able to do that again. But it's definitely exciting. I mean, especially as like it's my technically my first orchestra show, and like I'll be a senior, so there's some traditions that we'll probably try and do. So it's definitely exciting, like to just get there and get to perform so much and get to like see my piece all done. It's like a very like. We've been doing this for a few months, so it is definitely like, okay, I'm ready to see it. I'm kind of ready to be done, but I'm excited to yeah. still like perform it and have other people see it. And yeah. This segment was by Saul Baser, El Quonar, and Imani Nutal. It was produced by Saul Baser, El Quonar, and Anna Faze. Those were our incredible performers on the ups and downs and differences of performing in a pandemic. After the break, Satota and DJ reflect on their racial identities and the vast array of factors that have formed them. Applause provides financial support to all performing arts programs and students at OPRF. Consider becoming an Applause sponsor today at levels beginning at just $25 to sustain OPRF performing arts programs, including band, orchestra, choir, and dance, as well as theater. Visit applauseoprf.org, and thank you for listening. Welcome back. Now, Satota and DJ discuss the effects this year has had on their own racial identities. Hi, my name is Satota Blomquist. And I'm DJ Sinchon. As black students at OPRF, we really wanted one of the sections of this podcast to talk about racial injustices seen at OPRF and in the community. We were going to cover protests and personal experiences and other students' accounts of racial injustice. We were all ready to continue with this topic with even two interviews already done. But on May 13th, DJ and I had this amazing conversation of our own struggles with racial identity. And we realized, oh shoot, how are we supposed to fight racism if we really aren't connected with our own race? So we got to work, spending hours in Mr. Lessing's room talking out what we thought and felt about different incidents in our lives and incidents in the world with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. One year ago today, the 26-year-old was shot in the scores of American cities and racing for new protests potentially new violence tonight. Pushing. Worry about myself every day. George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. Demand justice for George Floyd, the unarmed, handcuffed black man who pleaded with a police officer to let him breathe, as the officer pinned him to the pavement with a knee to his neck. George Floyd. 
George Floyd's death, when I first saw it on the news, um, I just thought to myself, it was, you know, just like another innocent black man being killed in America. Like, obviously it was horrible, but it wasn't that surprising to me. But um, then when I saw a lot of activism happening for it, I told myself, this must be where people really are starting to be fed up with the things that are happening in America. And uh, it made me wonder, why aren't I, you know, as being as activist for this than other people are? And I want to feel that spark that my people are also facing. I think I heard about the killing of George Floyd first through my mom. And I don't think it really processed through my head because... I don't know, I think I've basically become desensitized to, like, all the killings because in that same year, 2020, um, I think in February... ...charged with aggravated assault and murder in the shooting death of 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery was killed. And then in March... Miles Cosgrove, who the FBI says fired the shot that killed Breonna Taylor... Taylor ...was also killed. I feel like I should have had a much bigger reaction to all the news instead of just, oh, another killing. But I went on social media and saw the footage of George Floyd basically being killed. That's when I broke down. It felt like everything that I was holding in was just like coming out. I think it was also the start of like my realization of just how bad everything was. And it also made me question, like, literally everything about myself and how I fit into the world with my race and racial identity, which I kind of realized I don't really know anything about. Ever since I was born, my mom and dad have been split up for as long as I've known. And ever since then, I've lived with my grandparents, who are Hispanic, but they're fairly light-skinned. So, you know, they didn't really seem black um, or white, really, but obviously they didn't look like my race. Um, and due to my dad's non-involvement, I basically never had much interaction with the black side of my family outside of like um, a few yearly um, time spendings with them. And life for me growing up that way was pretty hard. It was hard to try and acknowledge the fact that I had a part of me, a large part of me that was missing. And not only that, but also those around me, like my parents, my mom, my mom and my mom's side of the family um, don't look the same as me. And in school, that was, that was mostly DJ, why aren't you the same color as your parents? DJ, are you adopted? And I'm not adopted, but it kind of makes you feel that way almost. It kind of makes you feel as if you don't really know your real family, because not only am I not the same race as them, but I also don't even know my other side, the part that I do show as. And when my dad died, it got even worse because not only not only was I not experiencing that due to him being gone, but when he died, he I also stopped communication with that side of the family altogether. 
and for around six years, I haven't had any contact with the black side of my family. But recently, in November of last year, I decided to go see my black side of my family again. To see my grandma and my cousin on my dad's side of the family, the first thing I noticed about them was their hair. If I'm going to be honest, I was always really embarrassed about not knowing how to do my hair as a person of color, and I always believed that it's something that I should know. When I went to go see my cousin, he had long two-strand twists, and I was amazed. I, I, I thought about myself, and I felt guilty that I showed up to him for the first time in six years, and all I had to show was an unkempt afro. Seeing him like that made me want to start taking better care of my hair, and I asked outside of my family to help me with my hair. It was relieving to know that I could begin to partake in things that most other African Americans care about, and it honestly helped me piece together a large part of that racial culture that I was missing. I was adopted from Ethiopia at the age of five, by two white parents and into a white family, who I love very much, <laughs> and also into a predominantly white neighborhood. I went back to Ethiopia in June of 2016, and if my calculations are correct, I think I was 12. But anyway, I went back to reunite with my biological family, my mom and my two brothers. I still remember the tour guide slash agent from the orphanage driving my mom, my dad, and me in this like minivan from our hotel to the small classroom where we were supposed to meet. Um, it was like a really long car ride, but I do remember feeling really nervous and excited, even though I probably didn't show it, because over the years I had watched YouTube videos like this one. Like children meeting their biological parents, being so emotional when they met them, and like they all hugged, and seemed so genuinely happy to be in the presence of each other, finally. It was nothing like that for me. We did hug, they cried and kissed me, and I could honestly feel their love for me but I didn't feel anything. They felt like strangers to me. I felt indifferent to what I thought and what seemed to be for literally everyone else in the world, a life-changing experience. Instead of like happiness and love, I vividly remember feeling guilt. Guilt for not having a strong enough reaction to meeting them. Guilt for not wanting to meet them earlier Guilt for not knowing Ethiopian culture and guilt for not connecting with black people in general and not feeling like at home with them. I felt so separate from black people. I felt so white and I hated feeling that because I knew I was black and I really wanted to connect with the black community. But on another level, I was pushing back from the black community wanting to stay with this comfortable white community that I'd grown up with and that I also loved. So I was in this sort of limbo that I just wanted to get out of, but couldn't. Oh my god, 
thought, okay, wow. I think producing this podcast and just making it all has really just been a much needed and really long therapy session for me. Um, I don't know about you, but it's been so good for me to talk everything out and actually figure out what I'm thinking and feeling, especially retelling that story of meeting my biological family. Like I choked up um, after making that and it just makes me think like now that I know I don't really have to feel guilty for anything that I'm like feeling because it's just valid. I really want to see them because now I just feel genuine love for them. And I would like to show that to them. Looking back on my experiences while creating this podcast made me realize how different I felt from the other kids due to the absence of my father and the black side of my family. Thinking about how my entire life could have been different if my father was still alive or if I kept in contact with the black side of my family. Even though the family I already live with has a plethora of interest in culture, it's still tough to go outside and know how people perceive me as black, and not even knowing or participating in that black culture just doesn't feel right. I'm glad that making this podcast helped me make that difference. It helped me realize that I'm a person of color, and I should be proud of it. Meeting up with people such as you, Satoda, helped me realize that we're not alone in our differences. There are people out there who are like us, and even though we're both stuck in limbo, having each other to relate to isn't so bad. Also, the process of making this podcast has really made me realize that I'm actually okay being in this limbo and the unknown in between two worlds. One, because I know I'm in the limbo and I've talked out everything, but also because I love my family and I know they support me and want me to be my true self. And I'm not gonna be ashamed for loving and wanting to be with my family and continuing to live in this limbo. This segment was by DJ Cintron and Satoda Blomquist. It was edited by Satoda Blomquist. And with that, we conclude our tales of the in-between. Thank you so much for listening. We truly hope you enjoyed our show. And hey, if you really enjoyed it, please consider donating through the link in the show notes to help us create more amazing things like this. Thank you. The fantastic company of this show includes Alea Bruner, Asha Puri, Anna Faze, Bethann Ivy, DJ Cintron, Edward Rupar, El Konar, Emery Branhorst, Henry Madden, Imani Nuttall, Jules Casto, Lindsay Kaina, Miles Barron, Sam Lubinis, Saul Bazer, Simon Gutierrez, Satota Blomquist, Victoria Richter, and Avi Lassen. Thank you for listening to Limbo, the first episode of Mid-Air, an OPR theatrical podcast. This work was made as the final show of our multi-production theater schedule for the 2020-21 school year. Next semester, OPRF students will be producing and performing in the plays Miss Holmes, Antigone, The Tempest, and Baby Wants Candy, as well as the musical Sister Act. 
You can help us make those by donating to bit.ly slash ilpureftdd. That's B-I-T dot L-Y backslash O-P-R-F-T-D-D. Thank you for listening.